Welcome to the Public Health Networker, the official podcast of the Public Health Podcast Network. I'm your host, Dr. April Moreno. Join us as we speak to public health professionals around the country and around the world in global, community, and environmental health topics. Join us also as we speak to podcasters in this field of public health. To learn more about us, visit publichealthpodcasters.com. And in the meantime, enjoy the episode. This is Dr. David Dijak of the National Environmental Health Association. So please tell us about yourself and National Environmental Health Association. Sure. I work for, as you referred to, NEHA. We are a national association which represents the environmental health profession. We think there's about 20,000 environmental health professionals in the United States. There's closer to 100,000 individuals working, more broadly speaking, on environmental issues. But about 20,000 are environmental health professionals, and we help build their capacity at the local, state, and federal level. And uh, we have almost 7,000 members, 40% in the private sector. So we're a little bit different than a lot of our counterparts that work primarily on behalf of government. Uh, We work to build the capacity of the private sector as well as the public sector. I'm a public health nomad. (laughs) That's the way way I refer to myself. I joined the profession, can you believe it, in 1986. Oh my gosh, that's, I'm starting to feel really old. I don't actually like getting into elevators where I have to look at the mirror because I'm like, who's that person? <laughs> but uh, I have had the privilege of having the most amazing experience in a profoundly exhilarating environment. And that is working on behalf of uh, the public every day to ensure that their health, their safety, and their financial prosperity is conserved. I've worked in academia, in consulting. I've worked on behalf of Fortune 5 companies. Uh, I did spend some time at NACHO, the National Association of County and City Health Officials. I believe I've been on every continent except Antarctica uh, for, for work. And it has been just extraordinary to be inspired by communities all around the world as, as they endeavor to create conditions under which each of their family members and communities can reach their full human potential. This is not exactly a question I asked on here, but what kept you in the field of public health? Why? Why did you stay here? What what keeps you in this field? Uh, this profession is evergreen. And I mean that both symbolically and literally. Everything changes all the time. And if one ever wanted a career where your challenge was something different, something new, something that involves art, that involves science, that involves the public, something that stretches your mind at every given moment, this is the career for you. It's certainly not a stale kind of profession, like teaching the same class over and over again or doing the same thing. Every day is a challenge and I'm enthused by it. I I am no less excited today than I was almost 40 years ago because it is so complex and it's not just scientific, it's social. And uh, there's different, and the way you can weave that together to create solutions, I find particularly rewarding. With public health, there's so many ways to to work in this field. It's not just epidemiology. There are just so many aspects to it. I think today you'll be able to tell us a little bit more about kind of this less common side of environmental health that um, we don't always hear so much about uh, getting your degree. 
Sure, I, I'd be delighted. We, we can begin to unpack that. The, the DRPH is more of an applied degree. It's a practice-oriented degree where the PhD is more uh, hypothesis-driven, uh, meaning more theoretical. Uh, we do test hypotheses in practice, but uh, it's much more controlled in a laboratory environment, and that's where a PhD is much more appropriate. Uh, the DRPH is a professional degree. It's an applied degree, and typically the research is done in the real world of work. And so you've got all the social variables and confounders that exist uh, in the real world. And so it's, it's a much more applied, meaning it's something that you can use in the workplace every day. There's a new emergence, a re-emergence of the field, which is great to see. Yeah, there's it ebbs and flows. Uh, my alma mater, the University of Michigan, had a DRPH, and I believe they sunset it, and they're focused on the PhD. There's nothing wrong with, with being focused, uh, but there's a whole universe of practitioners that would benefit from a terminal degree. Let's go ahead and talk about environmental health. How would you define environmental health? So there, there are many definitions uh, that exist, the WHO definition, the NEHA definition, many textbooks have definitions, but my definition is unique and it's mine. It is the science and art of ensuring every person reaches their full human potential by managing the intersection of people and their surroundings. Someone said to me this morning, that's a beefy definition. And I'm not quite sure what she meant by, by that, but we, we have a tendency to get hyper-technical and a tendency to try to include so much that people's eyes glaze over in this mm -hmm. era of TikTok and Instagram and Twitter, may I, say, may I add. Uh, it, it's really about the, the human environment interface. That's, that's what environmental health is. And that Interface can mean what you put in your mouth, what you inhale through your, through your nose, uh, what touches your skin, uh, it, any medium or media that may interact with a human being. It's that intersection where environmental health is fully uh, on display. The interface between the human and... And their surroundings. Well, I am part of an entire industry of human beings that went in through the back door. That may be less common today, I, I don't know. But in the 80s, just after I graduated, I was unaware of environmental health, but there was a regulation passed called AHERA, the Asbestos Hazard Emergency Response Act. And that act was passed by Congress, I think during the Reagan administration to address asbestos, a cancer-causing substance uh, that was very commonly uh, used as a building material in schools. Mm -hmm. And of course, we don't want to be exposing our children to cancer-causing uh, cause, you know, cancer fibers that may be uh, in their breathing zone. And that's, that's how I started my career in the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, working in asbestos abatement-related projects, asbestos location surveys, I like to say I've been everywhere from Key West, Florida to Bangor, Maine, examining and mapping out asbestos in buildings uh, where it was uh, in place. From there, I began to uh, work on projects in lead, lead and water, lead and paint, 
led in abandoned industrial sites, which led to PCBs, which led to indoor air quality, which led to a master's degree, which led to time in China, which led to a doctorate in public health, which led to a, a 18 year career as an academic. Mm -hmm. And so the, these things with each step in that journey, I learned something different and pivoted and fully began to appreciate and respect the discipline of industrial hygiene and environmental health. There's a lot that's been happening over the past decades. And I do remember throughout the 90s, asbestos was a huge, um, um, even, you know, buildings, um, a lot of the, like the popcorn ceiling or the roof. Yeah, so asbestos was used and literally, uh, I don't want to uh, be accused of hyperbole, but I in thousands of products, everything from automobile brakes, you know, in some cases it was added to paints because it's a fire retardant, you know, and heat resistant. And it's still used, a type of asbestos called chrysotile is still used today in certain industries like the, the chlorine industry. And believe it or not, it's imported from Russia. It's no longer, it used to be mined in Canada. And the Canadians, I think, have recently closed their last asbestos mine. But we, we uh, on record, have been importing asbestos from Russia in recent history. You know, I know we're talking about asbestos now, but I kind of want to go back into some of the things that Niha are, is doing right now. I'm not sure if you're working with anything asbestos-related at the moment anymore, but tell us what some of the, the major uh, projects that Niha is affiliated with at the moment. The, as we look at, do a lot of... Uh, partnering with the federal government, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, and the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, National Center for Environmental Health. We have a lot of, uh, or several cooperative agreements with them to focus on governmental environmental health professionals. And a healthy portion of what we do is to focus on retail food safety. To the best of my knowledge, April, everybody eats. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, as far as I know. Everybody I've heard, eats. I've heard of eritarians, air, though. I don't know if that's a real thing, but that, that's something I heard back a couple decades. Uh, I've been <laughs> I've been accused of that from time to time when my spouse is hungry. Uh, but ha having said that, we the world is changing, as I'd mentioned earlier. For example, e-commerce is much more common today. You know, you can call, use an app and get food delivered to your door. Well, is that food safe? And so the, the world is changing. Um, so retail food, your local restaurants, your local theaters, your local malls, uh, your local grocery stores. I, I like to call those grocerants because many supermarkets today have a hotline. It, and you know what I'm talking about, where you can go and get soup yeah. or salad. You know, all of that introduces potential contamination. Many of them were, were closed down during the peak of COVID, but they're, I'm watching them coming back <laughs> as we now speak. And so our work is that the inspectors know what to look for in some of these more complex uh, retail food environments like sushi, right? Special processes, uh, making kimchi and things of that nature. Uh, as these new complicated manufacturing uh, procedures get introduced, uh, we are there working with the local, uh, the local regulatory bodies to ensure they know what they need to know when they need to know it. And so retail food is important. Climate change is important, uh, something that is absolutely critical uh, during this era of climate change is extreme weather, concurrent disasters. And our team is working to understand how do jurisdictions 
address two disasters at the same time, COVID and wildfires, COVID and floods, COVID and earthquakes, right? Uh, and regretfully, these are becoming increasingly more common as the, as the world changes and the, the nature of public health has to change as well. And so when one comes to work in the morning, one thinks I'm gonna do A, but by five o'clock, you've probably done B, C, and D because how quickly uh, the world is, is evolving. Turbulent environments, right? As we used to say in public administration. Yeah, so last year in uh, 2021, uh, the data available to me suggests that there were $145 billion in damages just from natural disasters. If we looked at what happened in Western Kentucky with the tornado uh, just after this last Christmas and New Year, and then look at the, the fire, uh, 1,000 homes burned near Boulder, Colorado. Uh, these types of disasters are becoming increasingly more common, regretfully. And guess who is there, not is a primary responder, but a secondary responder, is the environmental health profession. And April, that's an important message I'd like to get out to your audience. This episode is sponsored by JMIR Publications, JMIR, the leading publisher of digital health research and an innovator in open access with more than 20 years of experience. As a mission-driven organization, JMIR seeks to expand availability of vetted research to all, improving scientific discourse for researchers and health outcomes for patients through transparency and inclusion. In 2021, JMIR proudly published authors from over 120 countries. JMIR Public Health and Surveillance invites Public Health Podcast Network listeners to submit their best work. And for a limited time, enjoy $100 off their APC with code PHPN100. You can find JMIR Public Health and Surveillance online at publichealth.jmir.org. You mentioned you don't hear or see much of environmental health. Uh, that's because we're not there when the cameras are there. But as soon as the cameras leave, questions start being raised. Is it safe to go home? Is, is the water that comes from my well, uh, when my community has been subject to intense heat, is it safe to drink? When plastics burn, a wide array of chemicals and contaminants are produced. So even if your house doesn't burn, if your neighbor's house burns, uh, there could be all kinds of contaminants that are in your heating, ventilating, and air conditioning system. Exactly. So when electricity goes out at your local grocery store and the generators stop working after a while, does all that food need to be thrown out? Uh, what can be saved? Uh, how about at your house? How long are things safe in your refrigerator uh, and in your freezer? Uh, and so there's there's a lot of very practical questions that need to be answered. And it's the local environmental health professional uh, that is guiding communities into recovery uh, where temporary shelters are required. It's the environmental health professional that's there making sure that no virus does not you know, present challenges, which it will inevitably do, but it's, it's the environmental health professional that is managing that risk. And so they are, the, in my opinion, they're the unsung heroes of public health. Since actually 86 or so, we were, we've been talking about the big one, right? We've been talking about this, uh, and we used to watch these really scary uh, class films about a gigantic earthquake coming. They would show injured children. I would have nightmares about the big one. 
in the 80s and 90s. But can you tell us if we were to experience the big 10.0 earthquake here in Southern California that we've been you know, talking about since the 80s, what are the environmental uh, concerns after at the aftermath of that? So there are several. First, uh, the idea of yo-yo. Are you familiar with that, April? Yo-yo means you're on your own. Healthcare centers and academic institutions and homeowners, uh, they need to be prepared to be on their own for a while, number one. From a you know that's that is absolutely critical. And I might ask you, and I won't embarrass you. Do you have an earthquake preparedness kit in the trunk of your car? I was dean of an accredited school of public health there in Southern California at Loma Linda University School of Public Health. Yeah, I went to Claremont, so CGU. Uh, yeah, I know Claremont well, and I used to ask students on the first day of class, "How many of you have a earthquake kit in you know available to you?" And fewer than 5% of the hands would go up. And by the way, the faculty would answer the same way. It mm-hmm. just, uh, but so what are the things that you may anticipate? How about no water? Literally, uh, where water connections break, what we know is that sewage and drinking water pipes are often in the same ditch as they're put in. And so there's the cross-contamination problem can be a major one. It's possible that electricity will go out if one is in a place where there is uh, the risk, like in Palm Springs, not far from where you live, the heat in the summertime. There's immediate ex- extreme thermal conditions that need to be considered and, uh, you know, frankly, access to food. So it's almost right away a life support <laughs> is, is becomes very critical and it becomes more critical if you've got vulnerable or sensitive uh, occupants of your residence. So we really do need to be prepared in case of the big one to support ourselves for two or three days before uh, we can anticipate state or federal support in our areas. Yeah, and then to be honest, I still don't even, people say you're supposed to turn off the gas outside your house after an earthquake. I don't even know how to do that. Those kinds of things are actually important. And to know where do you have uh, fresh water accessible to yourself? Do you keep containers of of water available to you? Do you know that you can drink the water in the tank of your toilet if you needed to, assuming that you don't have one of those blue chlorine uh, impregnated uh, tabs there? Mm-hmm. But there, uh, water from your water heater can be can be consumed. So there's there's lots of things that we in public health. Uh, can provide just-in-time communication to our communities uh, to help guide them and escort them to a better place after a disaster. So can you tell us about some of the current challenges um, as it relates relates to the topic of environmental justice? I'm delighted that it's getting the attention that it deserves. Uh, but some of us worked on this, have been working on this for decades. Mm-hmm. Um, and you are familiar with the uh, the harbor there in Southern California mm-hmm. and the rail yards. In yes. our own experience, yes. uh, we, we were working with uh, immigrant communities that had popped up around rail yards in Southern California. And I think mo- most people know that there's diesel uh, particulate that's generated uh, from those trains, from those locomotives. And so we had been working, conducting research and providing guidance to communities that were adjacent to those rail yards. And we've been doing that 
that for decades. What we know is this, uh, regretfully, uh, many communities, historically uh, marginalized communities, are at risk of environmental injustice uh, issues. If you look at the hog farms of North Carolina, if you look in Honolulu right now with the Red Hill uh, aquifer and the contamination from the U.S. military, if you look at Lowndes County, Alabama, and the septic systems there, uh, these are uh, historically marginalized communities that continue uh, to pay a significant price at the interface of the environment in their bodies. And we, you know, NEHA and other organizations are doing what we can to shine a light, a beacon on these issues and to ensure that our members are sensitive to them and will provide the necessary guidance uh, to protect and promote the health, safety and security of individuals that, that live in those places. Uh, this conversation is, is long overdue, uh, but to be sure, committed professionals have been working in this space for decades. I'm just glad now it's getting the attention that it deserves nationally. I was working in the city of Commerce and I would drive every morning through the rail yards across the 710 um, over there in the city of Commerce and um, it was grim. <laughs> it was just um, on the freeway just among huge you know gigantic um, trucks. Um, it wasn't I didn't feel particularly safe driving but also the quality of air and then also seeing the neighborhoods often being removed and displaced as well. Very much a, a Latinx, Latino community that I was working in. So that actually got me involved in environmental um, health as the beginning of um, public health and public administration. I'm, I'm glad you were inspired yes. by that. You know, one of the issue of living adjacent to roadways and railways and, and the like is, is, I think, not received the attention that it should. We do know that babies born from mothers who live adjacent to those places have smaller head circumferences and many other uh, physical manifestations of air pollution, believe it or not. So what the mother breathes can affect the child, the unborn. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are just so many um, consequences of inhalation of particulate matter, um, dangers of living by huge freeways and railway roadways, railways, and so on. Um, depression, even um, asthma, and so on. Yeah, the whole thing. Um, so yeah, that was actually the beginning for me. Uh, East Yard Communities for Justice, I believe they're called, um, is one of the community organizations. There, so. What are some of the things that continue to need to be um, addressed out there as it relates to environmental health? Um, what do people just what should there be more emphasis on? I think first and foremost, it's not the what, but the who. And having a workforce that reflects the nature of the U.S. population, I think, is a step in the right direction. That is, uh, if 15% of the American public is African-American, I hope at some point 15% of our workforce is African-American. And so uh, that journey has begun. I observe it. I observe it particularly uh, in the coastal areas of the United States. Uh, having said that, uh, I'm also observing, as we do in all the sciences, that it's becoming much more woman-dominated. That may not be true right now, but it's rapidly becoming a fact. And, and that is, if you look at the enrollments in accredited schools of public health, it is dominated uh, by women. And so I think the workforce 
uh, should, you know, the, the racial and ethnic makeup should reflect the United States writ large. And we need to take care of our, our female employees so that they can have long, productive careers in, in environmental health and public health. And so that's, that's number one, workforce is important and giving them the tools and resources that they need and, and not subject them to the harassment that many have experienced over the last two years. I know everybody likes to talk about the what, but I think the who is really important. And to anyone that's listening in from the public health workforce, thank you. Anyone listening in from environmental health, thank you. Thank you for what you've done. I did not have your seat at the table, but from what I've observed, you've been through a lot. And all of us in the United States are in debt to you. As we now speak, April 60, 60, 60% of the country is either in moderate to severe drought. And as Mark Twain once said, whiskey is for drinking and water is for fighting over. I, I think we are, we're in a place where we need to think very carefully about water as, uh, as an important resource for us. Uh, there will certainly be more conversations about the use of cisterns. There will be more conversations about gray water use. There will be more conflict over access to water. I mean, look at the Colorado River. It's been at historic low levels, uh, Lake Powell, uh, Lake Mead, and the like. Uh, so these are not just inconveniences. This is becoming a major issue. And um, I think we need to come to grips as a country. Water, where water exists, uh, we're increasingly, because of climate change, finding harmful algal blooms. Uh, that are becoming uh, much more common, regretfully. And those have a profound impact on local economies. Look at Naples, Florida, a few couple of years ago with dead marine life uh, coming up on shore. Uh, did you know two years ago, every public beach in Mississippi was closed because of cyanobacter, uh, which is uh, a harmful algal bloom. It, it looks like, you know, algae. You know, these have public health consequences and financial consequences. What we've seen over the last couple of years, these financial consequences can lead to mental health issues and other issues uh, for, for all kinds of communities. So environmental health is not just a convenience. It's a central part of life mm -hmm. as, as we know it. And this is why you profoundly disturbed me early with your accurate statement that, you know, you guys aren't in the news much. Mm -hmm. we're, tr we're, we're trying to figure that out. Extreme weather, I've, I've already talked about. Uh, I don't know if you're aware that over 90% of all bottled water, probably your favorite drinking water, is has microplastics in it. And we, we don't know, frankly, what that means. And then for those of us, people like me, who love to recycle, only about 10% of plastics are actually recycled. Even when you put your plastic bottle in a recycle bin, oftentimes that gets thrown away because there's no market for it. That's, mm -hmm. that's the truth. So there are, there's the traditional food, water, sanitation, hygiene kinds of uh, environmental health issues, but that's changing to, so, to more of these emerging kinds of questions. Here's a good one that most people don't talk about. These tire shreds that are showing up in playgrounds, that is not a good idea in my estimation. And there may be carcinogens associated with those. And here we bring our youngest, most vulnerable of our community there to play. And so as quickly as we introduce what we think is a fix 
only to find out that we we've created another challenge for us in the public health universe. Think about Ebola, which got everyone's attention. Uh, think about COVID, which got everyone's attention. And ask yourself, what do those two have in common? I think at the end of the day, we will agree that they came from meat markets in different parts of the world. And that's retail food, and that is the domain of environmental health professionals. Now, we don't hear much about environmental health around COVID, and I could talk at length about the role of the profession over the last couple of years, but these uh, zoonotic diseases that come from animals, animal protein that are sold in markets around the world cost the United States. I think it's there's pretty good evidence that COVID started in a market, what's referred to as a wet market in Wuhan. Uh, I, I don't know that for a fact. I don't want to pretend I know something uh, that I don't. Uh, but the evidence is increasingly compelling that it came from a meat market. We These meat markets, what happens in Wuhan doesn't stay there. What happens in West Africa doesn't stay there. It rapidly uh, moves with with human migration. And I think we need to pay attention to that. And it's the environmental health profession that's inspecting those places. It's the environmental health profession that knows where the risks are. It's the environmental health profession that most likely speaks the local language. Even uh, uh, in the United States, there are many communities where one, two, three, in some cases, 20 languages are spoken. And because the environmental health profession doesn't work in an office. It's out in the community every day, every day, because that's what it does. It works with a regulated community. It works with schools and daycares. It works in the hospitality industry. It's checking pools and spas and rivers and beaches. Our our professional community most likely is the, the folks that can speak the local language. I was in a state not too long ago where the state health director said that the environmental health program, get this, spoke 18 languages. That's amazing. Because they have to. They have to to do their business. Mm -hmm. And so we, we, we need to, to keep in mind uh, that culture plays a big role in the way that people make decisions or think about making decisions. And it's mm -hmm. the environmental health profession that really gets that because we're in the community every day. Two of the major crises of, um, facing our existence as human beings are going to be, um, you know, dependent upon environmental health. And um, I'm just really uh, convinced now today, really appreciating this conversation so very much. What are some public health tips that professionals, students can do if they want to get involved? I think that this is going to continue to emerge as an important field and topic. I'm hoping that we hear a lot more about environmental health, even environmental justice. So what can people do to begin this journey? So if you're talking about a career in environmental yeah. health, uh, there is so much demand, as I think there is in public health in general. Uh, but if somebody wanted to intern, start their career, or to be a, a PHAP, a public health associates uh, program uh, participant with the U.S. Centers for Disease Control, or simply uh, get to know your local environmental health professional and understand what challenges there are locally. Uh, here's a great tweet for you. Environmental health is profoundly local. And this is true. Uh, environmental health is what happens in your bathroom. It's what happens in your kitchen. It's what happens in your car. It's what happens in your playground. It's what happens in your school. Are you with me? <laughs> so yes. it's, it's 
it is profoundly local. And I think as somebody starts their journey or becomes more familiar with it, become familiar with your own backyard. Become familiar. Like, for example, I'm on well water. I have a well. Mm-hmm. I'm on public sewer, but I'm, I have well water. You know, so what is, is my water safe? There is no government agency that which oversees my water. Mm-hmm. And uh, so th- these are the kind, and every community is somewhat unique in the types of challenges and conditions that are uh, part and parcel of, of their part of the country. I, I think each of us, it's incumbent on us to understand what's there and to ensure that we're promoting the health, safety, and security of our of ourselves, our families, and those that we care about uh, on our streets. Again, I'm just really grateful been able to connect with you and hear more about the importance of environmental health. You know, increasingly becoming very convinced that your field, this field, is going to be where we have to focus on this, or else we will not continue to exist as human beings. I think someone said the planet will just uh, continue to be just fine without us. The planet will continue to exist and do what it's doing, but humanity, we need to figure this out. We do, and I believe that the environmental health profession needs to do a better job of stepping up and speaking up, and we we need to regretfully invest our nights and weekends in developing relationships. I spoke in South Carolina last week at Myrtle Beach, and that was a repeated theme throughout the two and a half days is the importance of relationships. And I don't think we in schools of public health are focusing on that essential part of the profession. People make decisions based on their values, beliefs, and absorbed identities. In many cases, they don't make decisions based on data. Folks often say, oh, you're poo-pooing data. I'm not poo-pooing data at all. I mean, think about it. Even before COVID, vaccine hesitancy, and there's a there's a lot a fair amount of it in the United States. Our vaccination rates prior to COVID were were pretty poor relative to many parts of the world. And we have to ask ourselves why, why is that? April, twenty to thirty percent of all prescriptions go unfilled in the United States. That's you know there could be many reasons for that. But someone went to the doctor, or got a prescription, and never bothered to get the prescription filled. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the public we're working with. And about 50% of individuals with chronic disease don't are non-compliant with their medicine. I mean, it's and so we as a culture have some challenges in working with the with the clinical professions to begin with. Mm-hmm. And then, then you superimpose a pandemic on that. And let's not be surprised again. It's really important that we continue to build awareness of national environmental health association and also about environmental health in general but tell us more about the organization what's coming up and uh, your website sure well a lot of what we provide is free to the public health workforce for example we have a conference around uh, food safety and foodborne illness investigations called the inform conference it is virtual and the last i saw the last numbers i saw over a thousand people had uh, signed up for that. You can learn about that on our website. We do have our annual conference occurring in beautiful Spokane. And when I say beautiful, I mean it. That is a fabulous town in eastern Washington state, uh, Spokane, Washington. It's at the end of June. We're anticipating a thousand to 1200 environmental health professionals gathering there uh, to hear the state health official uh, welcome us, uh, Dr. Umer Shah. 
Uh, we're really looking forward to, to that. Uh, he's a dynamic speaker, and we have over 200 presentations on all aspects of environmental health that will be presented there, pre-conference uh, workshops and courses, and it's, it's going to be an exciting time. Thank you. And that's at neha.org, your website? That is correct. Thank you so much again for joining us today. Thank you so much for your wisdom and all of the information you've been able to share with us. I've learned so much today um, speaking with you and um, have some brief and very insightful statements and sentences to share on our social media about what public health and what environmental health is. So thank you so much for sharing these important and crucial messages today. Thanks. Well, uh, you are quite polished with this. Congratulations uh, uh, for launching a successful program. I look forward to uh, listening to your podcast in the future, and I wish you all the best in this really important journey that we're all on, and that mm -hmm. is to protect the health, safety, and financial prosperity of, of everybody. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. And again, like you mentioned, it is all about people. It's about humanity and um, really getting to the, understand the fact that we have to connect with people, the importance of connection, um, keep one another thriving is um, one of the major goals of public health. Yeah, I'm going to have hashtag relationships matter. <laughs> <laughs>